Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Sonia Klucharova. Sonia, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Alex. Thank you for having me on the podcast. Uh, so my name is Sonia, and I'm originally from Slovakia, which is a tiny country in the middle of Europe. I went to college in Vienna, Austria, uh, where I lived for about eight years. Um, after college, I also worked for two years in project management. And then I decided to sort of change careers. And I moved to the United States, uh, to Orlando, Florida, where I completed my PhD in business administration uh, with a specialization in marketing. Um, and then um, after that, I worked for two years as a postdoc at Montpellier Business School in France. And after that, I moved back to the United States and I currently work as an assistant professor of marketing at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. Nice. So what what did you write your dissertation on for your PhD? Mm -hmm. So my dissertation was focused on status consumption. Uh, namely, it was called uh, antecedents and consequences consequences of status consumption. Can, uh, yeah, can you tell us about that? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so my dissertation consisted of two essays. So in my first essay, I was looking at the connection between people's engagement in status consumption and their propensity to engage in charitable donation behavior. And although we might be tempted to think uh, that those are two opposing ends, we actually found together with my um, advisor that once you engage in status consumption, it actually empowers you. And then as a consequence of that, you are more likely to engage in charitable donation behavior. So that was my first essay. And then my second essay um, is about word of mouth about status products. So again, uh, people are very tempted to talk and share word of mouth about their status products. You know, so so if you think about um, luxury handbags or like brand name clothes and stuff like that, and they do so because they think that engagement in this word of mouth about their status products will bring them um, heightened status in the eyes of other people. But what we found in the second essay of my dissertation that is actually the opposite. So um, if you talk about your luxury handbag, for example, people will perceive that you have lower status um, in comparison to you being quiet about that status product, right? So, so basically uh, the outcome of it is that it's okay to own status products by all means, uh, but you should not be talking about them. Interesting. And how did you gather the data for this uh, analysis? So I am an experimental researcher. And so I gather my own data for all of my research. So I run experiments uh, with my own participants. And, uh, you know, I, I recruit participants um, online uh, through platforms such as Amazon Mechanical Turk, uh, Prolific, for example, um, but also um, at my university. So, for example, at the University of Central Florida, where I completed my PhD, 
we had a behavioral lab uh, where we could run experiments with students. And it is the same uh, at my current university, at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. And I also sometimes do field experiments. Um, I recently published a paper that features an interesting field experiment that I conducted in a restaurant here in Slovakia, uh, where I'm from. Um, and that was pretty cool. Very cool. So can you walk us through what what does that actually look like? Can you give us an example of when you ran an experiment, when you were um, collecting data, and what, what did you actually do? So the field experiment that I ran in a restaurant, uh, what we did was that we manipulated the conspicuousness of the plates that the restaurant uses. And by doing that, we actually manipulated uh, the conspicuousness of the consumption because uh, our main focus was the manipulation of whether the uh, whether the consumption was conspicuous or inconspicuous. Um, now, just to explain, conspicuous consumption means, you know, like more fancy, opulent, visible consumption, right? And inconspicuous consumption, uh, you know, is, is less, basically less visible, uh, you know. So in, in our restaurant study, we did that uh, through the plates. So in one condition, uh, well, what I call condition, uh, we did that in, in the first week. So basically Monday through Friday, all the meals in the restaurant were served using very fancy plates uh, with like gold color, you know, and like very elaborate um, so that when people, you know, were, were eating their meals from those plates, uh, they were literally conspicuously consuming. And then in the following week, um, everything was kept the same in the restaurant except for the plates. So, so all the meals uh, in the restaurant were served using very plain, white, inconspicuous plates. And what we were looking at was whether you know that the change in plates, or in other words, you know those plates were our proxy for conspicuous consumption. Whether conspicuous versus inconspicuous consumption would have an effect on the payment method that people uh, were using in the restaurant. And, you know, we did that experiment um, in a small family-owned restaurant in Slovakia um, that really wants people uh, to pay in cash. That's, that's kind of their preference um, for many different reasons. Um, and it's not the case only in Slovakia, you know. Uh, that, that many such restaurants also in other countries prefer uh, if the customers pay in cash. Um, and so what we found in our experiment was that uh, in the week uh, that we that we used the conspicuous plates or when the customers engage in conspicuous consumption, customers were more likely uh, to pay using cash. Um, so, so the outcome for the restaurant is like if you if you want to increase the number of customers uh, who pay who pay using cash, then you might go uh, with fancy plates uh, and let your customers engage in conspicuous consumption as opposed to using just plain white inconspicuous uh, plates. That's very interesting. Do you have a theory on why that might have an effect on how customers pay? Mm -hmm. uh, so we did not test that uh, in this field study because we could only see, you know, the outcome or the main effect. 
but we we do propose a few theories that could actually um, you know be be at play there. Uh, one of them could be the visibility, uh, because the main aspect of conspicuous consumption, as the name suggests, is visibility, right? And then when you will get cash as a payment method, it is also visible, especially when you compare it to paying by credit card or debit card where you don't see the actual money, right? I mean, of course, the money is there, but you don't see it. It's, it's just a piece of plastic. Uh, so definitely when you look at um, uh, cash versus card, cash is a more visible uh, payment method. So we were thinking that maybe, uh, you know, those, those those two things are in sync. So conspicuous consumption and cash, you know, as, as basically two visible things. Um, and maybe that's uh, what drives the effect. Um, our other theory uh, was empowerment um, because uh, prior research shows that status consumption or conspicuous consumption uh, can empower consumers. Actually, when I say prior research, it is my research, uh, my first dissertation essay that in the meanwhile has been published, um, where we show that, uh, that such consumption can empower um, consumers. And, and again, some other prior research shows that there might be a link uh, between empowerment um, and, and the use of cash. Uh, so that could be another potential explanation. But uh, we did not test it empirically. So, you know, these are just some, some sort of hypotheses, uh, but it would need to be tested empirically um, to be able to conclude, you know, what is really happening there. Mm -hmm. That's very interesting. And, and that's just a couple of the studies you've run. If, if I remember correctly, you've, you've had uh, several publications um, that, that you've created. Are there any others that, that you find particularly interesting that you'd like to share with us? Sure, absolutely. Uh, so I had one publication. Um, so it was a research project that I uh, worked on by myself uh, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And it was about and how, you know, this use of face masks can actually help increase the credibility of social media influencers and, and perceived competence uh, of social media influencers, which is something that they often struggle with because, you know, there is research showing that uh, social media influencers are often perceived as relatively incompetent. Uh, and, I found, <laughs> and I found that, that you know, by, by using face masks during the pandemic, you know, in their social media posts can actually um, increase uh, their perceived competence. And the reason why it was interesting, um, because before the pandemic for a very long time, like, I mean, who were the, pe who were the people who would be using face masks? Uh, mainly medical staff, right? So, so medical doctors, nurses, and those kinds of people, right? And so in consumers' minds, face masks for a long time, especially before the pandemic and, and right at the beginning of the pandemic, were associated um, with those medical professionals. And those medical professionals, of course, uh, are perceived by people as highly competent. So when a social media influencer would wear that mask, um, and I was testing it specifically um, with surgical masks, so like reusable uh, face masks, then you know the people uh, would be reminded uh, of those medical professionals and, they, and, and their competence, and that competence would then rub off on the social media influencers. And that was the explanation. Oh, I love it. That's Thank so you. interesting. Yeah, actually, I forgot to mention that this research was even included um, 
in the World Health Organization's database of COVID-19 research. Interesting. And how did you gather the data on how people rated influencers as competent? Mm-hmm. Um, so again, that was an experiment that I did online. Of course, I had to run it online. It was during the pandemic, so so there were no uh, in-person experiments at that time. Um, and they would be randomly assigned to one of the two conditions. So they would either see um, an influencer who was wearing a face mask um, or not. And there was there was also a brief description of the influencer, like where the influencer is from, um, you know, like what their age is, um, things like that. And then um, I used uh, a measure of competence um, from the from the existing literature, right? Um, so uh, there were certain certain items, uh, you know, that the participants would have to rate using an established scale, um, an established competence scale. So you put like Kim Kardashian as a zero, and like some celebrity doctor as a ten or so. <laughs> how what, how did you establish the baseline? Out of curiosity. Um, I think there were there were three or so items, uh, and I used bipolar scale for that. Uh, so basically, they were asked. So so on this scale, uh, how would you rate uh, this influencer? And you know, it was a I believe a seven point scale. So on the one hand, you would have uh, incompetent. On the other hand, you would have competent, and anything in between. Um, and, and, and a couple of, uh, you know, other measures that I cannot remember from the top of my head. They were, that were basically synonyms of, of being competent, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so those are the, the sort of scales that we, that we use, which are typically from the literature, academic that's, literature. That's very interesting. Um, I'm curious how that, that can apply to different signals that influencers can use, like, I don't know, uh, walking around with some, some other kind of a tool that, that makes them, you know, kind of similar to, uh, another competent professional. I don't know what that might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but do, do you in general ever think about like how the learning can be applied to other use cases and ha- have you, do you have any examples of that? Mm-hmm. Well, Certainly, uh, you know, I think this publication offers a good baseline uh, for some potential spin-off projects, either for me or for other researchers in the field. So, so once we know what we know, uh, you know, like the effect that I established, um, I think other researchers or potentially even myself uh, could take it further. And instead of face masks, which are not being so used anymore, we might be thinking of some other ways of how to increase um, social media influencers competence and and what you mentioned would be a good example maybe you know if they um if they create social media posts uh in which they include some highly competent individuals uh maybe some scientists uh you know or well of course it depends on on the specific product that they are trying to promote right uh, so if they maybe include uh, some experts some scientists uh, or some highly respected people in the field maybe you know the expertise of those of those people could sort of rub off um on the influencers um because many people many consumers um you know, have this belief um, of like psychological contagion, um, you know, um, where where basically um, 
there is this relationship or this association between a product um, and the user uh, who uses the product. Uh, so even even you know that theory could be could be further developed, uh, you know, or or further applied um, in additional contexts. That's very interesting. So I want to I want to kind of go back to the beginning. What got you mm -hmm. interested in studying consumer behavior? Well, I think consumer behavior is a very interesting area because consumer mind uh, for a long time was like a black box. <laughs> so you would not know um, like what's going on uh, in their mind. But now with all the research in consumer behavior, we are gaining you know more and more knowledge and insights into consumer knowledge. And I think it's very exciting because all of us are consumers and we all can relate to this in one way um, or another. So in other, in other words, I'm also studying perhaps my own behavior or the behavior of, of my friends, my family, and that's really exciting. And very often the research ideas come from my own experiences as a consumer or from my family's experiences as consumers. Um, and I find it really exciting. And is that where the ideas come from? Is is thinking about the way that you consume and having sort of theories on what are the drivers, or how how do you kind of come up with these ideas of what to test? Right. Uh, yes. Yeah, so they often come uh, from my own experiences. Sometimes they also come, uh, you know, from from the literature. So when you read uh, papers of other colleagues in the field, or maybe you attend their presentations at conferences, uh, you know, you put the dots together and then you are like, oh, I have, I have a, an idea related to that, but, but it's a little different, uh, but, but you use, you know, their knowledge as a starting point or, or their findings as a starting point. So that also happens, but very often, you know, like you are, you are at the store, um, as a consumer, um, and you are wondering, um, you know, about okay um you know which package which pa packaging would be better um is it the the shiny one or a non-shiny one for example um you know and, and maybe that's that i mean that was a very basic example but that's how many ideas um you know start and then mm -hmm. evolve into something more complex so if i wanted to run a experiment and get a learning like the ones that you recommended what what would i need to do what would i need to um acquire or you know how, how do you how do you recommend somebody actually goes out and does this kind of research can anybody go out and do this kind of research before starting any research project um i need to contact an irb and basically every university in the united states uh has one or should have one so irb stands for institutional review board i need to describe formally uh, my proposed project to them um, answer their questions um, and then you know once uh once they find it satisfactory and once they are sure that i will not harm any participants uh, in my research um you know they will they will give me approval or they will say that this is uh, exempt um uh, because uh you know i I mean, this is just a just a basic research where people will answer a bunch of questions, so there is no harm in it. Uh, but it has to go through the approval process first. Um, and so once once I go through the through the approval process, 
uh, with IRB, only then I can start um, collecting my data. And when participants decide that they want to engage uh, in my research, of course, first I have to present them with an informed consent that they have to read, uh, so they are informed uh, of their rights. Uh, they know that they can um, uh, they can exit out of the research anytime. They don't have to, you know, continue if they don't feel uh, comfortable doing so. Um, and they also read about the other rights that they have. You know, they have to consent uh, to the research, and only then uh, can they start um, completing the study. And as I said before, I usually complete the studies. Um, either online, um, in that case, uh, we tend to pay participants and or we also complete some studies at the university because we have a behavioral lab. And in that case, they tend to receive credits that they can then use for their courses. Oh, very interesting. Mm -hmm. So you have like a budget through which you operate. Um, yes, I do. And is, is that the primary reason you have to go through the IRB or can you not really be introduced into a publication if you don't go through the IRB? Like what what is the, the reason why you need to go through this process? Mm -hmm. So the main reason why IRB exists is to protect the rights of the study participants. Because uh, there were some cases in the past, it was like in the 50s, in the 60s, where some researchers uh, really engage participants in in pretty harmful studies um and at the time irb did not exist right so so they did not seek anybody's approval um but they caused uh, some psychological serious psychological harm um to to their participants i think one good example uh would be the stanford prison experiment by philip zimbardo you might be familiar with that another one was uh, by stanley milgram where participants were asked to administer electric shock to other participants uh right uh although these people were actors and and there were no electric shocks in reality but they were i mean the participants were not aware of it um and they were they were basically encouraged you know to keep increasing the voltage uh and like the the person standing next to them would be like, oh, go on, go on, continue, keep increasing it. And so, of course, that caused a lot of psychological harm to these participants. Uh, so because of studies uh, like this, um, you know, there was a need for IRB. Um, and so IRB really reviews, you know, all the application it receives and it makes sure uh, that something like this will not happen again. Does a lot of research happen outside of the university system or is it very, very like, or is almost all of it through universities? You know, there is also this other option where you can essentially buy uh, data sets. So, so data that are already there, uh, but in that case, you are not working with primary data, you are working with secondary data. So you can, you can basically pay a company uh, such as Nielsen to buy their data set, and then you just analyze, you know, the data that you get from them. Um, so in that case, of course, there is no be involved I mean you just you just need to have enough budget enough money uh, to buy those those data sets uh, but I'm not somebody um, who would do that I have colleagues um, who do it but my uh, my specialization is in you know collecting primary data and working with primary data and conducting my own experiments um, I want to talk about one thing you mentioned uh, in our previous call which is around disabled social influencers can you tell us about your research in that area? 
Sure, absolutely. Uh, so this is still very much work in progress. So I presented that research at a couple of conferences and hopefully the next step will be um, you know, publication in some journal. Um, although, as I, as I mentioned, I'm still working on it, so it's not complete yet. Um, I thought it was important uh, to start digging deeper into this topic because there is not a whole of, a whole of academic research on disabled social media influencers, even though, um, as we might all be aware, there are a number of disabled social media influencers out there. Um, and there are also several articles in popular media talking about these influencers. There are certain blogs online talking about those uh, disabled social media influencers, but I did not find a hold of academic work on that topic, which I think is a pity because disabled social media, disabled social media influencers uh, certainly can bring a lot of value uh, to the companies. And I'm trying to, uh, with my research, I'm trying to, uh, you know, find those different ways uh, in which disabled social media influencers uh, could be helpful um, and why companies uh, should, should work with them. So in my specific project, the first project that I'm working on, uh, on this topic, I'm looking at uh, the link uh, between disabled social media influencers and perceptions of product luxury. So in other words, um, I'm looking at, uh, you know, if a product is promoted by a disabled influencer versus a non-disabled influencer, how will that affect consumers' perceptions that this product is luxurious? Um, and interestingly, I find that if a product is uh, promoted by a disabled influencer, consumers have the perception that this product is more luxurious, which I think could be very beneficial, especially for companies that are in the luxury uh, sector and that want to promote uh, their products uh, as luxurious and that want to create the perception that their products are luxurious. Wow. That's interesting. So, so that'll be uh, coming out soon, I guess. People can follow you for how that turns out. Any other uh, interesting uh, research that you're doing or, or any other results you, you'd like to share? I have this other project um, with one colleague from um, from my previous school, uh, so Montpellier Business School, where we are looking at minimalism um, in product design, um, which is also a very hot topic these days, you know, like minimalism and inconspicuousness. Um, and so that's also a pretty cool topic because um, there are so many products these days uh, that look very, very minimalistic. And if you know, if if you or I look at them, we would think that they may be cost a couple of dollars. But then in reality, uh, they might end up costing hundreds or thousands of dollars, right? Um, and my colleague and I uh, were really intrigued by this. Uh, and we were wondering, okay, are people really willing to pay a lot of money uh, for these minimalistic products uh, or not? And furthermore, you know, what do they think that other people are willing to pay uh, for these products? So, so what is their their perception or their prediction of of, of how much these products are valued uh, by by other people? Um, so there was there was one question, and the other question was, uh, you know, can these minimalistic products' perceived value be increased 
if we attach some sort of high status cue to them, right? So if, for example, you know, there is an, a piece of information stating that uh, this product was designed by a well-known designer, uh, will that increase uh, the perceived value of that product and also, um, you know, the perceived value that, that we think other people will have um, of that product? So these are uh, the sort of questions that we are cur currently exploring with regard uh, to that specific project. And again, I think there will be um, many, many other projects and there are already many other uh, research projects, you know, by, by different scholars in marketing who are looking um, into those minimalistic product designs uh, and especially luxurious minimalistic product designs. Very interesting. I remember, um just seeing on social media, you know, people contrasting how even architecture was done 100 years ago or 200 years ago compared to today. And we see this minimalism um, everywhere. You know, everything has been simplified. And I certainly hope that we go back to a more ornate design language as a society, because it's kind of sad to see the art stripped away. So I'm curious mm -hmm. what what comes of that study. Oh, like with that study, um, what what we found, and we are focusing specifically on the minimalistic products because we even try to to run some experiments uh, with the with the ornate products or you know more elaborate ones, and we don't find the same effect. So so the effect was basically flat um, for for more maximalistic product. But for the minimalistic products, we find that adding a, a high status cue. Such as you know mentioning that it was designed um, by um, an established designer can actually perceive uh, can actually increase the perceived value um, of that minimalistic product, and more specifically, it also increases um, you know what we call uh, the second order willingness to pay, meaning people assume that if you put uh, or if you attach uh, some high status cue to a minimalistic product, they assume that especially other people will be willing to pay uh, more for that product. Um, and this can be used, of course, um, by some luxury retailers. Uh, first of all, you know, they can attach uh, some high status cues to their minimalistic products if they want to increase, uh, you know, consumers valuation of those products. And second of all, they can try, um, you know, to put consumers into the shoes of other people so that consumers will not think, uh, you know, as themselves, but they will try to put themselves into the shoes of other people because because by doing that, they can increase, uh, you know, their willingness to pay even further. Wow. That's very interesting. I, it's crazy to think like all of this can be studied and uh, and optimized. You know, it can inform product design and... I guess, ha have you worked with any companies or ha have you seen your work actually impact the products that a company releases? Not yet. I haven't seen that yet, uh, but I certainly hope um, that my research will inform, um, you know, some companies and their products uh, and not only companies and their products, but even like nonprofits, uh, you know, who are trying for example, to raise as much money as possible uh, for their charitable causes. So in other words, I'm, I'm hopeful that my research can be put into good use 
um, in that regard as well. Um, I have one research project that got published back in 2018, where we are specifically looking at um, advertising appeals and you know how they affect uh, the donation intention um, of consumers and we manipulate two things so the first is um, you know you you get an email for example um, with the donation appeal and you will see the picture of the week of the victim there and we manipulate whether the victim is happy smiling or whether the victim is sad um, and the second thing uh, we manipulated in that research was the text, uh, the text underneath. Uh, so, you know, in our technical language, we call it uh, regulatory focus, whether it's promotion or prevention. Um, I think in, in layman terms, uh, promotion is like a more positive, upbeat language, which is focused on uh, gains. And prevention focus is more on like how to avoid losses. So it's kind of like more, more negative. And what we find um, in that research is that the combination of a happy victim image with the promotion focus text, so like a more positive text focused on gains, uh, is the most effective in driving up charitable donations. Uh, so I'm really hopeful that more and more charities will start using that because we see many charities that are using, um, you know, sad appeals and like pictures of sad victims. But in our research, uh, we did not find, uh, you know, those images uh, to be very effective uh, in driving up uh, charitable donations. So really what we found was that uh, the ideal combination would be a happy victim image combined uh, with that promotion focused text. Very interesting. I, I love that. And, and hopefully uh, some businesses are listening to this and can hopefully. can learn yeah. from it and, and it can be implemented. So thank mm -hmm. you, Sonia. I, I think that's a great, great ending point. I really appreciate you joining uh, for this episode. Thank you, Alex. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Absolutely. And, and I'd love to have you on again sometime. Thank you. Alrighty, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.